0: Our Father, we pray that You would help us today to honor Your Word. We pray that You would help me to honor Your Word in preaching it, for all of us to honor Your Word in the hearing of it and in the practicing of it. We ask that You would help us to honor Your Word by reverencing Jesus Christ for what He has done. And may we see in the pages of Scripture more of Him, that we may know Him more and obey Him more and love Him more, and that we may give You, our great triune God, the glory that You are due. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You need to have your bibles open to John chapter 19. And we're going to read together verses 1 through and we will read verses 1 through 16 of John 19. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him and they began to come up to him and say hail king of the jews and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them behold i am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement. But in Hebrew, Gabatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Well, we are right in the middle of this passage dealing with uh, Pilate and his interaction with Jesus and the crowds. And of all four of the Gospels, John gives us more detail about Pilate than any of the other three Gospels. Uh, you may have noticed as we read through Mark's account at the beginning of our time here this morning that Mark gives quite an abbreviated description of the events that unfolded here. John offers to us far more detail, far more of the dialogue uh, that went on. And uh, we get, because of John, uh, a long and extended and very thoughtful look at this character, Pilate. And I have to say that the more I study Pilate and the more I think about him and read this text over and over again, the more of an intriguing character Pilate seems to be. He's rather fascinating to me. And I find myself vacillating back and forth between finding Pilate utterly contemptible and utterly pitiable. I don't know if you've noticed that. On on one hand, you look at Pilate and you say, what a spineless, feckless, gutless coward. What a moral reprobate. Somebody who understood what was right. It was clearly in front of him. He understood exactly what the right thing to do was. And yet he lacked the moral fortitude to do it. He lacked the moral will to do what was right. And instead, he makes all of these concessions and these compromises, even moral compromises, just just serving to damn his own soul, doing even injustice upon injustice, rather than just doing what is right and taking whatever consequences might come. And so what a contemptible individual that that he knows what is right, but doesn't is not willing to do it. And then how he treats Jesus and all of the, the political posturing and the manipulation that he's involved in, in in trying to secure Jesus release. And then I think to myself, but what a pitiable individual Pilate is. I feel like Tevya in The Fiddler on the Roof on the one hand, but on the other hand, but on the other hand, on the other hand, what a pitiable individual Pilate is. He woke up one Friday morning. And he was probably hoping it was just going to be a mail it in Friday, show up at the office, do the very minimum that you have to do and look forward to the weekend. Saturday is coming and Sunday is coming and then we'll get back to the grind on Monday morning. And Pilate didn't ask for any of this situation. He woke up one Friday morning and this whole case was dropped in his lap. All of the chaos, he finds himself in a perfect storm of of these horrible circumstances. An innocent man on his hands and a nation over which he ruled as the Roman emperor over Jerusalem and over the nation of Israel, a nation over which he ruled that was demanding the death of an innocent man and with, with every turn and at every opportunity pushing him farther and farther into a corner, forcing his hand, using him as a tool, and Pilate didn't want any of this. And so you just, don't you at least feel somewhat sorry? For the poor guy. You ever show up on a Friday thinking it's the last day of the week. This is going to go easy. And then everything falls apart and it's the worst day of the week so far. I feel bad for him. But he could have avoided the whole thing if he had just done what was morally right. So what a contemptible individual he really is. And I bat, I vacillate back and forth between those two options with Pilate. And that brings us to verse 7 of our text. Verse 7. We looked at the first six verses this last uh, our last Sunday together. And uh, in case you weren't there, in case you have forgot what I said, because I forgot what I said, let me quickly review what it was that we covered. Chapter 19 begins with Pilate scourging Jesus. He scourged him, and this was a beating, a whipping that left him bloodied and bruised and uh, in tremendous pain. And he added to all of that scourging the the public humiliation of putting a crown of thorns on his head and a, a reed in his hand and a purple robe on his back and mocking this one who made pretensions to kingship. Because remember, that was the charge of the Jews against Jesus, that he made himself out to be a king and that he forbid them from paying taxes to Caesar. Now, Jesus did claim to be the Messiah of Israel. He did make that claim to king. He never denied that. But the rest of those accusations were completely fabricated and completely false and only intended to get Pilate on the side of the Jews and want to crucify Jesus because uh, supposedly Jesus was a threat to Rome. So, Pilate, of course, from the moment that Jesus showed up in the praetorium in his his house that morning, Pilate was seeking a way to release Jesus. And he tried all of these different avenues. And finally, Pilate decided that maybe mocking him in front of the Jews might elicit some sympathy on behalf of the Jews. So, he had his soldiers put the crown of thorns and the reed in his right hand and spit on him and strike him and uh, beat him and whipping and humiliate him and come up and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and bow down in, in mock humiliation, mock worship, mock reverence. All of this intending to, of course... Uh, humiliate Jesus and mock his, his kingliness, his, his majesty. And then he, Pilate brought him out in front of all of the Jews, out publicly in front of the praetorium where his accusers were at and where the crowds had begun to gather. And he presented him there, behold the man. And of course, this is all intended to elicit sympathy on behalf of the crowd. And Pilate is thinking in his mind, we know from Luke, he was seeking to release Jesus. That's why he had him punished. So in Pilate's mind, he was hoping that the Jews would see one of their own one of their own countrymen, one of their own brothers, being tormented and humiliated and mocked by the Romans and say, you know what, this is ridiculous. We shouldn't be allowing Romans to do this to any Jew, especially a Jew as nice and kind as this man who has done all these miracles and showed such compassion and taught such great things. And that they would then uh, call, say enough is enough and that they would drop the charges and that the crowd would see one of their own and feel sympathy and call for Jesus release and then Pilate could release them. That was the goal, of course, but that's not what happened. The whole thing backfired on Pilate. I mean, talk about your day going poorly. And then rather than the people feeling some sort of pity or, or compassion for this one in front of them who had been mocked and humiliated and, and was beaten and bloody and bruised, instead they called out for his crucifixion. And that brings us to verse uh, 6. Uh, six is where Pilate said, take him yourself. He was frustrated. Take him yourself and crucify him. The Jews knew and Pilate knew that that was not a legitimate offer to hand this case over to the Jews for the Jews to do the dirty deed. Uh, the Romans never did that. This is Pilate saying, look, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want to execute an innocent man. I find no guilt in him. That's the third time Pilate has affirmed that. I find no guilt in him. You take him yourselves and crucify him. I will not be your tool in the murder of an innocent man. And I think that at this point, and this is is sanctified speculation, at this point, I think the Jews realized we are at an impasse. Three times, Pilate has said, I find no guilt in him, based upon the charges that the Jews brought against him. And Pilate has finally said, I'm not doing this. I'm not crucifying him. He is an innocent man. And if I had to bet that had the Jews remained silent, I think Pilate might have been inclined to release them. And that is why the Jews bring up an entirely new charge in verse 7 and one that struck fear into the heart of Pilate. Verse 7, after Pilate said to them, I find no guilt in him, the Jews answered him, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Now, all of this is new information, right? Was that originally what the Jews told Pilate when they delivered him to him that morning? That wasn't the accusation, was it? They didn't say to him he made himself out to be the son of God. They said to him originally, he makes himself out to be a king. He says he is our king. And he tells us not to pay taxes to Caesar. And Pilate went in and examined Jesus based upon those accusations. And he came out and he said he's not guilty. This is no king. He's no threat to Rome. He claims to have a kingdom and it's of another realm. And Rome doesn't worry about kings over other realms that are not of this world. Pilate didn't see any threat in Jesus whatsoever. And on the verge of releasing him and saying for the third time, he is an innocent man. The Jews change entirely their line of accusation. And now they say to Pilate, but based upon our law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Now, the Jews, having brought the accusations that should have interested Rome, he makes himself out to be a king. They have failed in getting any kind of a guilty verdict or a condemnation or a death sentence from Pilate on those grounds. So now they change tax and they go to their own law. According to Jewish law, he has made himself out to be the son of God, and so he should die. And those words, in verse 7, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die. The word ought there means an obligation. We are obligated to put him to death. Uh, he is obligated to give up his life because of the claims that he made. And what was the claims that he made? He made himself out to be the Son of God. And that's their charge. So they've changed now from bringing an accusation based on Roman law to now bringing an accusation based upon the Jewish law. According to our law that we have, He's obligated to die. We must put him to death because he made himself out to be the son of God. Now, what particularly about the Jewish law required that somebody claiming to be the son of God should be put to death? I think since the Jews don't since the Jews don't uh, quote chapter and verse, of course, they didn't have chapter and verses back then. But since they don't quote the passage that they are thinking of, we are left to speculate as to what what precept in the law they might be thinking of that required the death penalty. And that seems to be Leviticus 24, verse 16 which reads as follows. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Now that's the precept. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And it called for death by stoning. The Jews don't mention that because they didn't want to do it. Right? What part of it did they mention? The part that demanded that he be put to death. Now, what about that precept? What about what Jesus had done, required him to be put to death? Because he made himself out to be the Son of God. To make yourself out to be the Son of God is to claim to have the same nature as God himself. It is to make a claim to divinity. So according to Jewish law, and this is true, anybody who blasphemed God's name by being a false prophet or a false teacher or falsely pretending to be God, or to be divine, or claiming to be God in human flesh. Anything like that would be considered blasphemy against the name of God. To take the name of God, even the name, for instance, I am, and use it of yourself, would be an act of blasphemy, would it not? And so Jesus should be put to death. Right? If the Jewish law says that to blaspheme the name of God is to demand the death sentence, then is it right that Jesus should be put to death? That seems like a foolproof argument, doesn't it? But it is pretenders who should have been put to death. You see, if Jesus was not God, then his statements were blasphemy. But if Jesus is God, then his statements are not blasphemous. They're the truth. And that's what he told Pilate. For this reason, I've been born into this world. I've come here to testify to the truth. What was the truth? That he is the I am. That he is the second person of the eternal trinity. That he is God in human flesh. That is what he claimed to be. That is what he said of himself. If it is not true, then truly he has blasphemed and death is what he deserves. But if it is true, then he deserves worship. Not murder, but worship. They ought to bow down in front of him if he is the I am. They ought to stone him if he is not the I am. Now, did the Jews understand exactly what it was that Jesus was claiming? They most certainly did. They said he makes himself out to be the Son of God. They understood what he was claiming. He was making a claim to deity, to have the same nature as the Father. And they understood this. Did the Jews have any reason for thinking that Jesus was a pretender to such a claim rather than really the one who was such a man? Think about who it is that is making this charge against him. These are the same men who in John chapter 5 saw him heal a man who had been lame for 38 years. These are the same men who knew that he had healed a man that was born blind in John chapter 9. These are the same men who heard about the resurrection of Lazarus and knew that Lazarus was dead and knew that Jesus had called him out of the tomb and restored him to life. These are the same men who after meeting, uh, after the resurrection of Lazarus, they met together and said, if we let him continue on like this, everyone will believe in him. We must kill him. We must kill him or the entire nation will follow him. So not only did they know exactly what it was that he claimed, But they had ample proof that his claims were true. And that's what Jesus pointed to in John 5. He said, take my word, take the Father's word. These are the witnesses that bear with me. And Jesus said at one point, look at the signs that I do. The miracles that I do prove that I am who I say that I am. And so they should not have put him to death because he made the claim, yes, but he gave evidence of the fact that that claim was true. Anybody else making that claim should have been put to death. But Jesus making that claim, he should not have been put to death. And notice what it is that the Jews say about him. He makes himself out to be the Son of God. In other words, they understood that this claim that he was the Son of God was not something propagated by some of his misled followers. But this was his own words. He makes himself out to be the Son of God. This is his claim of himself. Have you ever heard of the name Bart Ehrman? Bart Ehrman graduated from Moody Bible Institute in Chicago uh, with a degree, he went on to deny the faith and apostatize, and he's written all of these books attacking Christianity and saying the New Testament is not reliable. And so he's a full, a full-fledged apostate. He makes very good money, money from his apostasy, by the way, and all the books that he sells. And one of the books that he sold is called, uh, is titled, uh, How Jesus Became God. That's the name of the book. The premise of the book is this. Jesus never made any claims to divinity. He never took the divine name to himself. He never took divine titles to himself. He never assumed to operate any divine prerogatives. He never made any claims which might indicate that he was, in fact, God in human flesh. But that claim that he was God in human flesh was something that his followers came up with decades and years later. They deified him by attributing these thoughts and these ideas to him and then writing in the epistles that this was the case. Well, Bart, if Jesus never claimed to be God, then why did the Jews crucify him? Does he get his theology from Bill O'Reilly? They crucified him because he was a tax rebel? That's what Bill O'Reilly thinks. Some conflict with the Roman government? Jesus wasn't in conflict with the Roman government. Why did the Jews crucify him? The Jews crucified him because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Now, what claims were the Jews thinking of specifically? Let me give you three instances, all from the Gospel of John. You'll remember these if you've been with us from the beginning. John chapter 5, John chapter 8, and John chapter 10. In John chapter 5, after Jesus healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, He made the claim, the Father is working, my Father is working until now, and I myself am working. And John records this, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. And John doesn't say that they picked up stones, but that probably is likely what they did. They would have been trying to kill him by stoning him. Why? The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own Father, Making himself equal with God. What did the Jews understand when he said, my father is working and I am working? He refers to God who was always working, even on the Sabbath, as his own father. And the Jews said, if you call God your father, you are making yourself equal to God. Because they understood what that claim of that type of sonship meant. And so they picked up stones to stone him, to kill him. In John chapter 8, Jesus said to them, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad So the Jews said to him, are you not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. That's the divine name from Exodus chapter 3. I am. I exist. I've always existed. Even before Abraham was born, I am the great I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And then in John chapter 10, after telling them that he was the good shepherd, laying claim to God's title from the Old Testament, Psalm 23... They understood exactly what he was saying. And then when Jesus clarified it, he said in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus, at no point when they picked up stones, ever said, Oh, whoa, 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 hold on. Did you think I was claiming deity? Wow, what a horrible... Horrible, misconception, misunderstanding we have here. That's not what I was claiming at all. I'm sorry, you misunderstood me. Never said that at all. He would just walk out of the midst of them. They understood exactly what he was claiming, and that's why they crucified him. Now, all of this is news to Pilate. And now Pilate is in a horrible dilemma. His day just keeps getting worse. This is why sometimes I'm over here, and I just pity the poor guy. His day just keeps getting worse. Now he has had... A bombshell dropped in his lap. He must die because he makes himself out to be the son of God. Now Pilate has an added dilemma. He has, number one, an entirely new charge brought against him, an entirely new uh, investigation that he has to engage in, because now this is, this is the brand new charge. And Pilate, according to Roman uh, precept and, and Roman custom, Pilate had to do everything that he could to honor the laws of the Jews. This was one of the brilliant things that Rome did in conquering all of the different nations and expanding their kingdom is when they went into every nation, they weren't like the Babylonians where they would wipe out their temples and wipe out their gods and destroy them and force the people to worship the Babylonian gods. The, The Romans learned from that horrible experience and instead the Romans would conquer a land and they would say, keep your custom, keep your laws, keep your rulers, your culture, your religion, keep all of it, everything, you just do what you're going to do and we will just tax you. We will just take your money, we will rule you, put down rebellions, but you just enjoy what you've always been enjoying. And they, and the Romans had their governors, their prefects, and the people who ruled the different areas of the Roman Empire. Their job was to keep the peace, and one of the ways that they kept the peace was to honor the different customs and religious practices of the various nations over which they ruled. So now that the Jews have said, we have a law, yes, Roman law does not address this, but Jewish law does, and according to Jewish law, he must die. So now now Pilate has a whole nother thing thrown into this mix. He doesn't have to just deal with what Roman law says. Suddenly he has to be an arbiter of what Jewish law says, and he has to walk this fine line of now he has an innocent man. But now he has to deal with what the Jewish law says and and honor their custom and honor their demands. And now he's added also another dilemma in this, that Pilate knew that the Jews would never tolerate somebody claiming to be God. He knew that this, this Jewish faith, this Jew, these Jewish people, were zealous for the Godhead and the nature of the Godhead and would not and did not tolerate any form of idolatry. Matthew Henry writes this. This embarrassed him, that is Pilate, this embarrassed him more than ever and made the case even more difficult. There was the more danger of offending the people if he should acquit Jesus, for he knew how jealous the people were for the unity of the Godhead and what aversion they now had to other gods. And therefore, though he might hope to pacify their rage against a pretended king, he could never reconcile them to a pretended God. End quote. Here's what Matthew Henry is saying. If it is true that at the root of all of this confusion and chaos of that morning and the charges and the Jews' hatred of him, of Jesus, if it is true that the central issue was that he claimed to be God, then Pilate knew right then There is no way he can pacify this mob. If he claims to be king, he can humiliate them and try and talk them out of being offended over the fact that he claimed to be a king. But if he claims to be God, there is no satisfying them. They are going to demand his execution. And now, with this charge, they have just made it even more difficult for Pilate to release Jesus, which he still wanted to do. So now look at verse 8. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Therefore, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. That little word more there is important because what does it indicate to us? He was afraid before. But suddenly, he's even more terrified. And why is Pilate more terrified now? Think of all that has happened for Pilate and to have Pilate in the last 12 hours. Pilate most certainly would have heard of Jesus' demeanor in the garden. How he gave himself up without a fight how he even kept Peter from from taking the sword and trying to fight the soldiers off and, and putting up any kind of a, a a resisting of arrest or any kind of a rebellion. Pilate would have heard of that. Pilate likely would have heard about how Jesus said, I am he and all the Roman cohort and everybody who came with it, that whole arresting party fell back at the revelation of that glory and that personhood. Pilate would have heard of that. Pilate would have heard of Malchus probably and how Malchus's ear was taken off and how Jesus healed his ear with a touch. Pilate would have heard of that. He would have heard about all of Jesus' demeanor that morning in the garden, or that later that evening, earlier that evening in the garden. Pilate would have heard uh, and knew of Jesus' innocence because three times he has said he's innocent of in these charges. He knew, Pilate knew that he was dealing with no ordinary individual and somebody that is completely unique in how he was comporting himself in Pilate's presence. And beyond all of that, Pilate had Jesus' own testimony from John chapter 18, 37 and 38, 36 and 37, where Jesus said to him, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. I come from another realm. And for this reason, I have been born and come into this world to testify to the truth. And Pilate could have put two and two together. And remembered that only a couple of hours earlier, Jesus told him, I'm not from this world. I come from someplace else. And I have come into this world to testify to the truth. And I do have a kingdom, but my kingdom is not of this realm. It is not of this creation. And it is not of this world. And now the Jews have said he makes himself out to be the son of God. You see, that's a game changer, isn't it? Because the Romans believed and had heard stories of gods and sons of gods in their Greek mythology of taking on flesh and living among men. And Pilate may have been cynical, but he was also superstitious. And so he would have had to ask himself, is this really possible? Is it possible that one of the gods should walk among us? Is it possible that one of the sons of the gods should walk among us? Is it possible that this individual who is standing before me, bound and bloodied and bruised and beaten, whom I've just scourged and humiliated and mocked, that this is actually one of the sons of the gods? Now, Pilate is not thinking in terms of Trinitarian theology and the incarnation, but he is thinking in terms of his own superstition, and he's terrified at the thought of that. Because if it is true that this one whom he has scourged and mocked and humiliated publicly is in fact one of the sons of one of the gods, what will become of Pilate? When he dies, right? Suddenly, Pilate is horrified at the thought that he might have indeed done this to one of the sons of the God. So he is terrified. And of course, this is this is going to require a second interview. So Jesus has been brought outside. Behold the man. And the Jews drop this in his lap. And if this is true, then it would make sense of everything that Pilate has heard and seen up to this point. All of this makes sense. The healing in the garden, the display of power, his innocence, Uh, his composure before Pilate, all of that, his his demeanor, all of this would make sense to Pilate now if indeed he is one of the gods or one of the God's sons. And so Pilate was terrified, brought Jesus back into the praetorium away from the Jews. Now he needs to sit down with Jesus and ask Jesus a few questions without the accusers, without the crowd, without the chance, crucify, crucify him privately, one-on-one, face-to-face. And so that's what he does. He brought Jesus back inside, verse 8, verse 9. He entered into the praetorium again and he said to Jesus, where are you from? Is it Galilee, Bethany, Bethlehem, Nazareth? Is that what he's asking? It has nothing to do with city, right? Pilate's not asking him, so what city do you come from? Because Pilate already knew that he came from Galilee, which is why Pilate had sent him to Herod. We looked at that a few weeks ago. When he heard that he came from Galilee, knowing Herod was in town, he sent him to Herod. So he already knew where he came from in terms of this earth. But Pilate's question goes beyond that. What realm do you come from? Notice that Pilate doesn't ask him, are you the Son of God? Or are you one of the gods in human flesh? Are you one of the sons of one of the gods? He doesn't ask that question. And I think the pilot may have kind of be easing into that conversation because have you ever been in a situation where you want to ask a question, but you're actually terrified to ask the question unless you get the answer that you might actually be anticipating that you might get? Have you ever been in a situation like that? I think that's pilot where pilot's at. So where are you from? That's kind of a soft way of getting to that. Is it true that you come from another realm? Name for me this realm. What realm is this? What world is this? What planet is this? Is it Asgard? Are you Thor? Are you Thor's son? Who are you exactly? That's what he's getting at. Where do you come from? Verse 9. Jesus gave him no answer. That, I think, is one of the most perplexing parts of, of the whole narrative right here. No answer. Who's silent. Where do you come from? Quiet. That's perplexing to me because Pilate had already asked him a question back at the end of chapter 18. And Jesus was more than willing to give him information. So why... Now, why in this situation, why with this question, is Jesus silent? This would be perplexing to Pilate because this would be the opportunity for Jesus to present his case and to try and get released and to give an answer to this and to, and to, and to, and to make his case before Pilate. But he doesn't do that. He's utterly silent before Pilate. And this frustrates him as you're about to see in a moment. But now we ask the question, why is it that Jesus didn't say anything to Pilate at this point? When Jesus had, had answered his questions about whether he was a king and, and over what he was a king and what type of a king he was earlier and at the end of chapter 18. Why is Jesus silent here? I think that I, I've read six different suggestions as to why Jesus was silent. I'm going to give to you the six in the order of what I think is least likely to what I think is probably most likely. So here they are. Number one, it's been suggested. Oh, before I get into that, recognize this is an answer, a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53, verse 7. Isaiah 53, verse 7 said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. 700 years before this day, Isaiah pictured the suffering servant, the one who was bruised for us and by whose stripes we are healed. And he said that before his accusers, he was silent and he didn't open his mouth. So this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. But I think that there might be other reasons why Jesus was silent there. Just because it's a fulfillment of prophecy doesn't mean that there's not more going on here. And I think there is more going on. So it has been suggested, first of all, that Pilate here is going beyond his legal capacity and Jesus is just not playing his game. In other words, he's silent because he knows that Pilate has overstepped his bounds. And this explanation goes something like this. Pilate's job was to determine guilt or innocence with the charges of, are you a king and are you a threat to Rome or a threat to Caesar? Pilate's only job, his only role in this, was to assess that accusation and determine guilty or innocent. And, but now that it's entered into another realm and Pilate is starting to ask him questions that have to do with his origin, this is irrelevant to the case. And so Jesus doesn't even entertain the question. In other words, this is Jesus' way of just pleading the fifth. You don't have authority to ask this question. This is not even pertaining to my case. Though you have asked it, I'm just not even going to answer it. And so he remains silent. That might be what's going on, though I don't think that that really is it. It's possible that Jesus recognizes here that he has already answered Pilate's question back at the end of chapter 18. When Jesus said to him, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. But since my servants aren't fighting, my kingdom is not of this realm as it is. And then he told Pilate, for this reason, I've been born and come into this world to testify to the truth. So Jesus has already answered Pilate's questions regarding his origin when he gave him a description of his origin earlier in answer to the question, are you the king of the Jews? That's a possibility. A third suggestion is that Pilate would never have understood this anyway. If Jesus had gone on and to explain to Pilate the doctrine of the Trinity and his unique relationship with the Father, and you have the Holy Spirit involved in this, and yes, I am the second person of the Trinity walking around in human flesh, born of a virgin. If Jesus had gone through the trouble of explaining that to Pilate, Pilate would never have understood it anyway. Pilate was a natural man with no spiritual capacity to understand truth. And it would have all been very mysterious to Pilate. And so Jesus just doesn't even bother explaining anything about the fact that he is the Son of God to Pilate. I think that that's possible, though. Keep in mind that Jesus did give a very long explanation to the Jews about his relationship to the Father in John chapter 5. And he never thought for a moment that he should not maybe be quiet because the Jews just wouldn't understand. these things. But I don't think that that's it. Now we're getting into the realm of what I think is a possibility. Number four, Pilate didn't deserve an answer. I think this gets to the heart of it. Jesus had already given Pilate more than enough information. And Pilate had already sinned against all the light he had received earlier. He had received his answer. He had received an invitation to know the truth. He had been told that Jesus Christ is the truth, that he was testifying to the truth. Pilate had received all of that light, and now Pilate has sinned against all of that light. And now Pilate does not deserve any more answers to any more of his questions. J.C. Ryle says this, He had been told plainly the nature of our Lord's kingdom and the purpose of our Lord's coming into the world and yet been obliged to confess publicly his innocence. And yet with all this light and knowledge, he had treated our Lord with flagrant injustice, scourged him, allowed him to be treated with the vilest indignities by his soldiers and held him up to scorn, knowing in his own mind all the time that he was a guiltless person. He had, in short, sinned away his opportunities, forsaken his own mercies and turned a deaf ear to the cries of his own conscience. Hence, our Lord would have nothing more to do with him and would tell him nothing more. End quote. That's possible, isn't it? That Jesus just said, I've told you enough. You have sinned against it. You get no more light. And that might lead to a fifth suggestion. And I think that these last three are all combining together. Not only that Pilate did not deserve another answer, but that Jesus actually here is intentionally keeping his identity veiled to Pilate as an act of judgment. When you sin against light, You sin against what you know to be true, and you reject the plain truth when you know it to be true, and you walk away from it like Bart Ehrman did and like many atheists do who grow up in Christian homes. When you sin against that kind of light, do not be surprised if God turns off the light entirely and gives you no more revelation. That is a judicial act of blindness and hardening of the heart, which God himself is free to do because he knows how much light has been rejected. Pilate has already sinned against it. He has rejected grace and mercy. And so Christ offers him no more. And it might even be a gracious thing for him to do to not give Pilate that light so that Pilate doesn't sin against even more light and increase Pilate's judgment. This may have been even in that not only an act of judgment, but also an act of mercy. And a sixth thing, a sixth possibility, is that Jesus here would do nothing to hinder his own suffering. Is it possible that Pilate was so terrified at the prospect that this one standing before him was the Son of God? That he was on the verge himself of releasing Jesus. And if he asked Jesus this, and if Jesus had said, and this is all sanctified speculation, if Jesus had said, Yes, I am the divine son, and evidenced that to Pilate, and Pilate had understood that, and Pilate got it up here, and in his heart, that Pilate would have said, You're free, and released him. And if Pilate would have released Jesus, then what would become of our salvation? What would become of the prophecies? And what would become of the sacrifices? And what would become of the types and the symbols and the shadows of the Old Testament? What would become of all those for whom he said he would die? His sheep. What would become of his sheep whom he had said he was going to lay down his life for them? Is it possible that Jesus here knows that if given the right information, that Pilate would do what would end up undercutting all of the divine plan to sacrifice him on a cross anyway? And in remaining silent, Jesus is in fact ensuring that he would suffer for his people and for his sheep? That, I think, is what's going on. A combination of all of that. Pilate didn't deserve the answer. Pilate deserved judgment. He had sinned against the light. Jesus gave him no more light. And at the same time, this accomplishes the divine plan that the Son of God should die. Because if he had told Pilate the truth, what Pilate would have released him. That is not what Jesus wanted. That is not what the Father wanted. Because it pleased both the Father and the Son that Jesus be crushed for our iniquities. So that, I think, is what is going on. That is why Jesus remained silent. And, of course, this mystified Pilate. He couldn't figure this out. This was conduct unlike anybody else had ever done before Pilate. Most people in this situation would have been begging for their lives, pleading their case, bringing in their witnesses, begging for Pilate to release them. Pilate's not used to someone standing before them and refusing to testify on their own behalf. And and, and it almost seems as if damning themselves by their own conduct. And so this mystified Pilate, which is why he says in verse 10, Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? That's offensive. That's offensive he can't even understand this you don't you don't realize that I have the power to execute you and I have the power to release you verse 10 do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you how is it that you don't speak to me I'm sovereign over what happens to you if I want to release you I can release you if I want to kill you I can kill you. what do you mean by not talking to me I'm the only one that can save you from this murderous mall this the premise there this was completely mysterious to Pilate Pilate thought he was sovereign over whether Jesus lived or died. Isn't that somewhat ironic? And so Jesus corrects him in verse 11. Jesus answered, You have no authority over me unless it has been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me, me to you has the greater sin. There are two statements there. They are somewhat related. You have no authority over me unless it has been granted to you from above. And the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Those are the two statements. Let's take each one of them and I will... I will try and take a stab at how I think that those two statements are related. The first statement, you have no authority over me unless it has been given to you from above. Pilate had said to him, I'm sovereign over whether you live or die. This is all my authority. This is my realm. It's my kingdom. It's my decision. I crucify you. That's my choice. If I scourge you, that's my choice. If I let you go, that's my choice. Anything I want to do with you, I can do to you. And Jesus strips all of that from him. None of those things are your choice. You can't choose to crucify me. You can't choose to let me go. You can't choose to scourge me. You can't choose to feed me dinner. You have no authority over anything pertaining to me unless that authority has been given to you from above. And he is saying to Pilate what the Old Testament affirms, what the New Testament affirms, Romans chapter 13, that all authority comes from God. And Jesus is just recognizing that whatever authority you think you have, you don't have because you wouldn't have power to do anything with me unless that had been given to you by the Father above. You're powerless. Pilate, you're not sovereign in this situation. This power is not yours. You do not make final determination as to whether or not I live or I die. You know who determined whether or not Jesus lived or died? Jesus did. That's what he said in John 10. I lay down my life for my sheep. Nobody takes it from me. I give it up on my own accord. I have authority to do this and I have authority to take it again. That's what he's already said. He is the one who is sovereign over whether he lived or died. He is choosing in this situation, to be in this situation. Pilate happens to be the man at this place at this time who is in that position, but Jesus is saying to him, you ultimately do not decide this matter at all. Second statement, the end of verse 11, for this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. He who delivered you, me to you has the greater sin. Now, what does he mean by that? Who is the one who delivered Jesus to Pilate? Some people think that's Judas. Well, Judas had a lot of sin to deal with, Right? He had a lot of sin to give accountability for. But it wasn't Judas who had delivered Jesus to Pilate. By this point, Judas was dead. He had already hung himself. Who was it that delivered Jesus to Pilate? That was Caiaphas. Judas delivered Jesus to Annas and Caiaphas, and Caiaphas turned him over to Pilate. So I think the person that is being described here is Caiaphas. It is Caiaphas who has the greater sin. That doesn't mean that Pilate had no sin in the matter. He certainly did. Because greater sin implies what? Lesser sin. Right. He's, doing all, he's not saying you have no you have no responsibility in this situation. Pilate had plenty to answer for, and he has been involved in plenty of sin and, and posturing and maneuvering and and lying to himself and to others and all of that. Pilate had plenty to answer for, but there is one who is even has a greater guilt in this whole situation. And that's Caiaphas. Now, the idea of having greater guilt and greater sin and lesser guilt and lesser sin, this points out a couple things that we need to keep in mind. First of all, not all sins are equal. Sometimes we hear people say that. Look, every sin is sin. every sin is equal. It's not true. Stealing a pencil from work is not the exact same thing as raping somebody. Stealing a paper clip or lying on your time card is not equivalent to homosexuality or adultery or fornication or anything like that. These are not equal sins in terms of how God views them. All sin does damn a person to hell. And I could be damned to hell for stealing ten minutes from my employer just as I could be damned to hell for all of the other sins. All sin is equally uh, damning in those terms, but not all sin bears the same weight of responsibility and guilt. Sins are different. There are sins committed outside the body and against the body. Sins of omission, sins of commission, public sins, private sins, sins that disqualify you from areas of service, sins that do not disqualify you from areas of service, etc., etc. So not all sins are equal. Further, not all punishment for sin is equal. Jesus said it'll be it'll be a more woeful for uh, Capernaum in the day of judgment than for Sodom. Sodom will have it easier in the day of judgment. Than the very city in which Jesus lived, who saw his miracles and heard his teaching, and yet still turned away from the light. Because the principle there is the amount of light that was rejected by Capernaum makes them more guilty than even Sodom. They rejected Jesus. Sodom did what Sodom did. And yet Capernaum will have a harsher treatment than Sodom because of the light that they rejected. So Caiaphas is even more guilty than Pilate. Now, what is the connection? Uh, for a couple of reasons. First, because, because it was Caiaphas who delivered Jesus to Pilate. Second, Caiaphas should have known better. He was the high priest of the nation of Israel. He had all the revelation of the prophets. He had the law. He understood scripture. He saw the miracles. It was Caiaphas who understood about Lazarus. He understood about the man born blind. He understood about the cripple healed. In John chapter 5, it was Caiaphas who had heard the teaching. He had witnessed Jesus. He had seen Jesus. He knew of the miracles. He knew of the teaching. Caiaphas knew exactly who Jesus was, and he crucified him anyway. So Caiaphas is sinning against greater guilt than Pilate. Pilate woke up one Friday morning, and this case is in his living room. Caiaphas had been plotting this for months, and he knew exactly who Jesus was. This is likely Jesus' first encounter with Pilate. He had had multiple encounters with Caiaphas and the chief priest and the other Jews who have been plotting his murder for over six months. So Caiaphas is the one who bears the greater guilt. Now the question is, what do these two sentences have to do with each other? How is it that Jesus can say, you have no authority over me except what's been given to you, therefore Caiaphas is more guilty for this reason? Do you see how those two things don't seem to kind of go together? Um, you don't have any authority unless it's been granted to you, therefore Caiaphas is more guilty. And and the connection between these two things is not uh, evidently or immediately clear to us. So in all of my reading, I haven't come across anything that is satisfactory so let me rush in for just a moment where angels fear to tread and suggest to you what might be a possible resolution of this. How do these two things relate? It seems to me, at least, that this is what Jesus is getting at. You are here by God's appointment and the authority that you have in this situation is by God's appointment. And you are responsible for what you do in this situation with the authority that you have been given. But understand something. That in this whole situation, which has been dropped in your lap by God's providence, which gives you a certain level of responsibility, there is another whose guilt is greater because they have put you in this situation. Caiaphas had been forced into this corner, sorry, Pilate had been forced into this corner by Caiaphas and by his murderous plans and by his deviousness and his deception and all that he intended to do and therefore since since Caiaphas is the one who is behind all of this. And in one sense, from a human perspective, Pilate is the innocent sort of bystander caught in the crosshairs of this. Pilate bears some guilt, but not the greatest measure of the guilt. The greatest measure of the guilt belongs to Caiaphas. Does that make sense? That, I think, is what Jesus is getting at there in verse 11. And we have to drop it there, and we'll finish this whole prelude to death section to verse 16 next week. Let me give you... a A few quick takeaways from this passage that we've looked at here. First, I want you to notice something. That Jesus, even in this situation, was trusting in the sovereignty of his Father. He knows this. When Jesus said, you have no authority over me except what's been granted to you from above, he is confessing something that you and I should rely upon constantly. Ultimately, there is no authority except from God. Ultimately, everything and anything that happens to us, doesn't matter by whose hand it happens, that happens to us because God has permitted it or willed it and allowed it. Because God has decreed that it should be so. Ultimately, everything that comes into our lives, and this is what Jesus is saying in verse 11, everything that has come into his life is by the decree of God. And Pilate can't do anything unless God allows it. And we need to rest our heads on that same pillow of God's sovereignty in life situations. Second, you and I ought to learn a lesson about rejecting truth from Caiaphas and Pilate. Every time you sin against the light and reject the light of truth, you only serve to harden your conscience. Have you been sitting here week after week after week and hearing about what Christ has done to save sinners and God's gracious offer of salvation? If you sin against that and reject that light, you continue to harden your heart. And there may come a time in God's justice and His judicial decree that He will remove from you that light and so harden your heart that you will not receive light, you will not see it, and you will be damned because you have rejected all that light. That's where Pilate was at. That's where Caiaphas was at. Learn that lesson. And the third thing I want you to observe here is how Jesus, even in this situation, he is acting as if he is the judge of all mankind. That statement in verse 11, he who delivered me to you has the greater guilt. Here was a man that was bloody and bruised and beaten and bound, standing before Pilate, the crown of thorns and a purple robe. And he is in that moment issuing decrees regarding divine justice, human responsibility, and the guilt of who has played the greatest role in this whole dilemma. This does, this does not sound like the words of a man who is cowering in fear. This sounds like the words of a man who is preparing to take his father's throne and execute judgment on humanity. He is in this very moment making decrees concerning divine justice and what that looks like and human guilt in this situation. Doesn't sound like a coward at all. He sounds like the sovereign son of man, the king, who himself is the judge of all mankind. In John chapter 5, that's what Jesus said he was. The Father doesn't judge anyone, Jesus said. He has committed all judgment to the Son. And here before Pilate, he is acting as if he is Pilate to judge. You're guilty. Caiaphas has more guilt. And one day, both Pilate and Caiaphas will stand before this King of all men. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful for your word. There's so much here that is worthy of our consideration and worthy of our time and attention. And we find that the more we look at your word and the more we study it, the more rich it is, and the more alive it becomes to our hearts and to our minds. We pray that you would deliver us from any amount of darkness or rejection of the truth that is harbored in our hearts. We pray that if there's anybody here who is rejecting that truth and turning away from it, hardening their own hearts, that you would soften their hearts, and that you would draw them to your son and to the Savior that they might come to know him. May we all stand before you, we pray, everyone here, a faultless before your throne, with exceeding joy, blameless because of what Christ has done. Thank you for a sovereign king and a sovereign savior who was in charge even of his own death and the timing of it and the means of it and did all of this on behalf of us, his sheep. Thank you for that shepherd who has died for us. We praise you in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org.